Hello and welcome to Arts Tonight. The staging of a new theatre production of a classic play inevitably sets its own inherent challenges and opportunities for those staging it and creates a sense of anticipation for audiences who will experience the production from the auditorium. This week, a brand new co-production between the Abbey Theatre and the Lyric Theatre of The Shadow of a Gunman by Sean O'Casey opens in Belfast, followed by a run in Dublin later this summer. Arts Tonight met the first of the various creative makers of this new production of The Shadow of a Gunman on the morning of its first reading by the cast, when many of those working on different aspects of the production hear the text read aloud for the first time. The team includes the set, costume, lighting and sound designers that create the atmospheric and scenic environment audiences experience when they take their seats in the theatre. So Shadow of a Gunman is the first of the Dublin Trilogy of plays, or what's now known as the Dublin Trilogy. Um, and it's a very funny play, but it also contains real tragedy. Set in one room of a Dublin tenement house in the early days of the War of Independence, centres around the character of Donal Daverin, played by Marco Halloran, trying to live a life as a poet. So he's moved into his friend Seamus Shields' house for some peace and quiet. Uh, however, very quickly a rumour begins in the house that Daverin is in fact a fugitive IRA gunman. And so the outside world kind of keeps crashing in on Donal's attempts to write in peace. And he's constantly plagued by visits from people in the building who believe he is a gunman, um, including Minnie Powell, who is a potential love interest. And ultimately, this rumour sets in motion a kind of irreversible chain of events which lead to the play's very tragic ending. Act 1. A return room in a tenement house in Hilljoy Square. At the back, two large windows looking out into the yard. They occupy practically the whole of the back wall space. Between the windows is a cupboard, on the top of which is a pile of books. The doors are open, and on these are hanging a number of collars and ties. Running parallel with the windows is a stretcher bed. Another runs at right angles along the wall at right. At the head of this bed is a door leading to the rest of the house. The wall on the left runs diagonally, so that the fireplace, which is in the centre, is plainly visible. On the mantel shelf to the right is a statue of the Virgin, to the left a statue of the Sacred Heart, and in the centre a crucifix. Around the fireplace are a few common cooking utensils. In the centre of the room is a table, on which are a typewriter, a candle and candlestick, a bunch of wild flowers in a vase, writing materials and a number of books. There are two chairs, one near the fireplace and one at the table. The aspect of the place is one of absolute untidiness, engendered on the one hand by the congenital slovenliness of James Shields and on the other by the temperament of Donald Daverin, 
making it appear impossible to effect an improvement in such a place. At the helm is director Wayne Jordan. I was good. I, I, I had pursued the play for a while. I'd, I'd wanted to do the play for a while. Uh, and then when that that kind of happened suddenly uh, after a long discussion, then we're like, oh, we're doing it now. So I was like, oh, oh OK, I'm also doing other things. But we, we were trying to figure that out. So I had also just done a production of um, Tarry Flynn in The Lear, the, the drama school. Um, Sarah Jane Shields, who's the lighting designer on Shadow of a Gunman, and Sarah Bacon, who's the set and costume designer on Shadow of a Gunman, they both had worked with me on... The show and the Lear and I felt we had had a very a working time that was full of play and when you're making a play that's a verb you want to be around a lot. So I invited them to come on board um, and luckily they did. And then um, Mel Mercier who is uh, the sound designer. Well I'd admired Mel's work uh, for a long time. I've seen a lot of his work with Deborah Warner and, and, and because of the play's potentially errant nature because it's funny with a capital F sometimes I, I thought it would be great to work with someone who could maybe really help me achieve the sense of imminent future history that kind of comes crashing in the play at the end. Andy Kyo is Senior Production Manager for the Abbey Theatre. Each new production has an element of risk, for want of a better word. And, you know, it's a new production. We, By and large, we are producing house, so we're engaging people to come in with their ideas about how they'll deliver something in a totally different way. So that's a huge challenge for a creative team, for a director and, and designers to be able to to collaborate on and to, to achieve. And, and it's, it's a very, very tough ask. Our role here in the production and the technical departments is to try and work with them. I mean, nobody is as familiar with the building and the stage and the auditorium as we are. So it's to work with them and to use our experience to hopefully support their ambition and hopefully that we're able to actually make it better by the time it gets to the stage. So I think that's our function, but also to know our place, that we're supporting that role. And ultimately, we're all supporting the actors on the night because they're the ones who have to work in that environment that's being created. So we're very conscious of that, that we're supporting that process. Fiat McAneil, director of the Abbey Theatre. So we're in the it's first day of rehearsals. It's a four-week rehearsal period, and uh, so we go to a ritual uh, on the morning of a uh, first reading, which is that uh, everybody backstage, our box office teams, everybody comes together to hear the play read for the first time. And what's what great about this one is that uh, we have Shawna Casey. Uh, the daughter of Sean in, in, with us, but also the team from the Lyric Theatre because it's a co-production with the Lyric uh, in Belfast. So it's, it's uh, quite a big crowded room and it's great to hear the play all together at the one time and hear it for the first time together. And uh, so I'm feeling kind of excited now and uh, I suppose the first morning of rehearsal is difficult and anxious for both the actors and ourselves because you, all the questions that go through your mind should we have done this play, is this the right play to do uh, have we cast it well and so all those kind of negative feelings go through your head and they're instantly dismissed of course as you start to hear the play there's a lot of people who, in that room uh, haven't read the play so you're hoping that the laughs will happen and you're hoping that the tragedy will twist so you, can, you learn a lot from a cold reading of a play and so having you know, almost 60 people in the room uh, gave us a kind of a sense of how an audience might respond to the play 
doing the Shadow of a Gunman with the lyric in Belfast a year before the centenary, I think is an important thing for us because it starts to prefigure the debates, the discussions, not, and not just about 1916, but the War of Independence and, and the Civil War. So it, it's an appropriate time for us to really look at that fantastic play. Siobhan Casey, you've just heard this first reading of Shadow of a Gunman for the Abbey and, and the lyric. What was that experience like hearing it read today? Well, it was very fresh, and uh, although I know the play rather well, <laughs> having been in it and directed it, it was lovely, very, very good cast, very, it's um, very homogenised, um, but it should be really good. Is, does the play take on a different life each time, each new performance? You know, do, do you almost see new things in it or new elements? It's the same play, and obviously you know all the words and all what's happening. But yes, of course, every actor brings his own colour to it and his own personality, so it has subtle differences. Niamh Lunny is head of the costume department in the Abbey Theatre. As a theatre professional, my absolute favourite part of my job is the read-through of a play and the first day of rehearsals. Um, There's irony in that because it's the actor's least favourite part. It's very, very hard for them to come in and read the play cold to a room full of people. Practically, we're always in a big rush to get all the measurements of all the actors who are in that show. So on a play like Shadow, I'm looking around the room thinking, I know Dan Gordon, but he hasn't been in the Abbey for a long time, so I need to make sure I get his measurements. And, you know, we basically make sure we've got everybody's measurements, all the information we need to move forward from them. I think the actor are often surprised at the you know the length and breadth of the measurements quite literally and we'll also ask them things like if they have any allergies or things they don't want to wear next to their skin or you know anything else they might want to tell us about injuries or anything that we might need to take into account in terms of the costume a surprising amount of information is gathered on the first day I love always seeing the vision that Wayne brings to his productions Um, and he's obviously worked really closely with Sarah to bring something fresh to this. Logistically it's different for us because normally at the end of the rehearsal process when we would go into the technical process we will be in Belfast so we need to be a bit ahead of ourselves this time. Uh, So in fact all the costumes are going to be worn in a run uh, by the the cast inside in the rehearsal room. We'll try and do as many notes as we can before we go to Belfast. Now I believe they have a full and wonderful costume department up there but what it means when we get up there is we won't have this backbone of stock to back us up. We won't be able to run out to the corridor and grab another pair of shoes or grab another pair of trousers or look for another trench coat or whatever it might be. So we just need to be that bit more organised and ready to go. There's a lot of very meticulous packing and uh, we have very big flight cases that we pack all the costumes into so they don't you know get rolled up and popped into suitcases they will get packed by character into these big flight cases and sort of rolled onto a big truck and rolled off again when we get to Belfast the idea being that you can open the door of the flight case and just pop the costumes into the dressing rooms for each actor and that it's all ready to go it's always interesting to have everybody in the room you know it is a fully collaborative effort uh, many of the actors I would have known from previous productions. So it's good to see them again, you know, even from a, a human and personal perspective, you know, to have that sense of a new gang of people, a new energy coming into the room. Um, I mean, bearing in mind as well that, you know, in Shadow of a Gunman, for instance, like Wayne Jordan, uh, I've production managed, I think, four of his productions before. Sarah Bacon, it's her debut on the Abbey stage as set designer. Sarah Jane Shields, it's her, not her first time working for the Abbey, but it's her debut on the Abbey stage. And Mel Mercier is doing sound, I've worked with Mel before. So that dynamic of new people coming into the room and um, new ambitions and new energies 
the first day of rehearsal there's a point in time where you have all of the actors involved as well so it starts to kind of go into a different phase in terms of production so my mind at times may be wandering into certain other things primarily budget and, and those kind of boring elements but but certainly kind of it's 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 a point that's important uh, that we market you know it's all countdown but that's an exciting point in the production so everybody's having a cup of tea now and what'll happen is everybody will reconvene and see Sarah Bacon's uh, model box of her set design. here they've been lifted straight out of a tenement or straight out these are the real bits scenically treated aged everything else is just you know clothes we're going to sort of develop but certainly you might look at these mood boards and think hang on a second <laughs> what play are we doing here and again we're not by period we're not saying that it's 1970s we're, put the, we're not it's not 1920s it's it's Siobhan, um, seeing the set design and the, the whole scheme for, for this production, you know, Wayne Jordan directing, Sarah Bacon designing, uh, I assume again that, that that's a pivotal moment in any production when, when all involved see how it's going to look and, and the space within which they lacked. Very important. I think the space is most likely the most important and also um, things that actors absolutely need in order to do the play, this play in particular. I, mean, I suppose you could have nothing, but it's not the sort of play to mime doors and things. So, you know, a door, windows, and... Um, no, it's, it's well, well represented, I think. Very simply, they've done it very simply, and they'll add um, the props and the things that are absolutely needed, which will stand out. Sort of, it's, I suppose you'd call it minimal, in a sense, and you see a lot of, you will see, I think, maybe, a lot of action at the back through the windows. Well, not a lot, but they will be used, that space at the back. Not, I hope, to distract from what's on front, but it won't be, so, yeah. It's a simple set rather than um, an overdressed set. Are you hoping to see the opening night in, in the Lyric in Belfast? Definitely, yes. It'd be great.
I meet Wayne Jordan, the play's director, in the Abbey Theatre Auditorium midway through rehearsals and ask him what his vision for this production is. I'd like to kind of come at it with a, with a kind of fresh approach. Certainly my reasons for doing it were related to the experience that I had doing Ploughing the Stars at the Abbey uh, twice and uh, both the excitement and difficulties I had I had with that text. And I w- really wanted another go at the, like the opus, to use a kind of slightly pretentious word. And the play is a real page turner. And, it, you know, I, I find that OKC really kind of brings one to the cold face of, a Dublin identity anyway, if, if not an, an Irish identity, although I do think it's a little different. And that uh, he does it in an extraordinarily um, dynamic way, w- which kind of uh, takes popular forms and uh, melodrama vaudeville and the, the musical and then kind of crashes the idea of kind of heroism or, rom- or romance or romanticism and rips those things apart. And so in a way, we do a lot of things, like we do interpolations and we make additions I mean not to the text but um, but, but really I guess the, the approach or, or, or what we're trying to do is really show what's there underneath it and and, and the anger that's in that and, and also uh, the way in which it's constructed and, and how arresting that is it's a play that I've never seen like it hasn't been on in my kind of theatre going lifetime so that was kind of interesting and also I think it's thought of as kind of minor in a way whereas actually I think it's a really extraordinary example of the way in which he it's almost like a kind of backwards joke in a way where where, where what he does is he uses comedy then to actually expose the horrendous uh, nature of, of hypocrisy and cowardice, cowardice that's going on underneath and I thought that although the play itself is not um, completely talking to now we're not in the middle of a war it, it definitely is recognisable to things that people say in the way that they go on about them. So with that, I kind of would be approaching the play with a a spirit of exploration to discover what's there as opposed to a vision that I implement. Is it a a good thing for you as a director to come to a play without having seen uh, anybody else's production of it? Do you prefer to do that rather than, we'll say, absorbing a few other productions, somehow putting them away and, and maybe taking something small out of that? I mean, sometimes the things that you're, you know, referencing in, uh, in 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 your predictions aren't are from predictions that aren't of that player for you, you know there's a kind of you're part of a kind of matrix of references and borrowings and you know nothing's original and and everything's in the midst of some sort of conversation with the making of art if not the making of theater at large and certainly when like I have been doing for the last three years anyway when you're making a lot of classical work you're in a dialogue with the way that plays are made and have been made and so on you'd be surprised and I would be potentially a little bit embarrassed at how many of those great plays that one hasn't seen (laughs) you know other than in kind of BBC versions when you're in school and I saw you know I did I'm sure that because I I think I did Shadow of a Gunman in school I, I never wrote in it in an exam so it's not something that, I, but I, but I remember being around, and I'm pretty sure we saw a video of it. But uh, it uh, it's not something I think about in a huge way. Like, usually, when I approach any text, I've spent so much time with it that you've kind of liberated it from the the the, the previous predictions or, or, or whatever that you saw. But it can be tough if you see if you're in the middle of rehearsals and you see when that. Like if I saw that, could be hard. No, no. I, I, there's a kind of uh, spectre of Sean O'Casey and the feeling of it that kind of haunts this building and the city. And certainly audiences come along to them as if they're going to a sing-song sometimes. Was it a very different process to directing Clown the Stars? 
I mean, they're, they're very different plays, and it's a few years on. I mean, did you do you feel you carried anything from that previous experience in the Abbey to directing this other very different O'Casey play? Yeah, I definitely carried something from it. I mean, it was a really formative experience. It was like my second show, and I did it within three months of my first show in here, like my second show in the Abbey, and on that scale. Uh, it's a really different experience of doing it, and it is a really different play. The cast are very different uh, in, in terms of what they're doing, and I'm very different from the person I did then. Certainly, Sh- Shadow of a Gum is a much fonder play to be in, even though the people in it are cowardly. And Planet Stars is a very dark and lonely play to be around. Um, there's kind of that difference. Also, the language is much less complex in Shadow of a Gum, and not necessarily better or worse, but uh, the, the language in, in, in Planet Stars is... It, it takes real work to, 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 to kind of get alive and sing. And Shadow of a Gunman has a lot more uh, visual and slapsticky gags in it. Or, or they build, hopefully, towards kind of uh, something terrible thematically, but they are literally like how we got to get the braces to spring open and, you know, when does that person come to the, through the door and where do you land your line? So there's kind of a bit of that and you kind of feel... It's, it's a little bit like what I imagine it would be doing, directing Jewish vaudeville sketches in the 20s in Broadway, I, I, one would hope. And, and so that has its own kind of spirit. And although there are elements of that, of course, in Plowing the Stars, they, 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 they weren't the kind of emphasis. So in another way, it's different. Also, it's set in one room. I have never really done a play set in one room. Also with an actor who never leaves the stage. So, you know, me and Marco Halloran spend a lot of time together. <laughs> and so all of those things have a very diff- give a very different tenor to the experience. How did you choose the creative team in terms of design, set, costume, lighting, and then uh, music, I think, working with Mel Mercier for the first time? I had just done a production of um, Tarry Flynn in Connell Morrison's version at the Lear, the the drama school, um, and I'd had a really exciting time doing it, and it had been a, like it had been really great and a lot of fun. The students were extraordinary, um, but I had a great time with my creative team on that, and also it was a play set in the thirties where we were trying to kind of liberate it from its period in a way, um, which is something I think we've been trying to do with Shadow of a Gunman as well. In a way, we're not in a way. We are trying to absolutely honour the day in 1920 that it was set, but I think we wanted to give people a sense of looking at something where they could see characters make decisions and that the play wasn't a fait accompli, you know, that the Georgian windows don't just appear and we know, oh, everybody's just going to die by the end. And we wanted to take the shawls off it and so on in order to really see the characters not yet in a new way, but in a new way for what they always, you know, always you're trying to kind of honour the thing that is there in the text and, 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 and then open up people's eyes to what that is so that it seems utterly fresh. So um, Sarah Jane Shields, who's the lighting designer on Shadow of a Gunman, and Sarah Bacon, who's the set and costume designer on Shadow of a Gunman, they both had worked with me on the show in the Lear and I felt we had had a very, I say fun, it seems like a, a kind of light word, but a, a working time that was full of play. You know, with Sarah Jane Shields, We've had a couple of conversations, but until we get up into the tech, most of mine and Sarah Bacon's and Sarah Jane Shields' work together won't really happen till then. But Sarah Bacon and I spent a number of months kind of talking through. And uh, I mean, one thing I'm really striving for in this, in the design element of this production, but probably at every end, is, is a kind of simplicity, which I think will be funny for people to think about when they see it, because I think it's probably quite hectic. <laughs> but, uh, but there's a certain element of, of, of simplicity that I'm looking for. And, and in order to find that, it takes a lot of time staring at like, blank walls and going are they blank enough do they need something else let's put that in strip it out so that was kind of the experience of that and then um mel mercier who is uh, the sound designer well i'd admired mel's work uh, for a long time i've seen a lot of his work with deborah warner and 
I think the first one being Medea here. I, I often try and find people to work with who have a very different tempo for me. And Mel certainly would have quite a different tempo for me. And, and, and I find that that, um, you know, creates more texture in the conversation and what can go into the piece. What would you like people to see or notice in a play like this directed by Wayne Jordan? I mean, is there is almost a little trademark thing that you'd like people to be able to say, ah, we, we recognise that director? I guess the liveness of the acting really is, is kind of the thing that I hope. It's the thing that people say. The, thing, the compliment I've most enjoyed recently that people would give about my shows is often comes from actors, but not always from actors, where people go, I just wanted to be in it. I think that's certainly something that I would be pursuing in all of my work. I kind of feel play gets a bit of a hard time, actually, in Ireland, where, we, where people are quite literary and also very afraid of performance and not very good at speaking about it, I think, but at a critical level, actually. And what I would like to offer someone who makes theatre is, is the way in which the I, the work, the work that the, the collaborators that I work with are making, is work that where the intellectual, the emotional, the political all happen in play so that they I'm not telling anybody what the thing is, but rather inviting them to dance in their mind with the ideas that we're presenting. And really what I'd like to do with the production is, is create a kind of sharing. There's certainly a, a tradition of the play and people will have a strong sense of it um, as being uh, part of canonical Irish culture uh, post kind of well, the cultural revival. And I want to kind of take it into the room and not feel that we are telling it or that it belongs in history of the past, but that we on the stage and everyone in the room has an opportunity to play with all the aspects of it in the hour and a half or so we spend with it. Sarah Bacon is the set and costume designer on the play. The set is being built in a warehouse in Coolock. Uh, today we're going to talk to Liz Barker, who's the scenic artist, and um, the last time I was out, 
she had finished the main body of the set and Paolo and TPS they had finished the, the build and it was looking great but there's a back wall um, which is corrugated metal and Liz was about to start working on that so that's where we're going out to see that today and this will probably be our, our last visit before the fit up in Belfast so this is our last chance to make any changes or adjustments or say oh my god no it's the wrong kind of red so actually the lyric stage and the Abbey stage are remarkably similar um, and the auditorium, obviously, you have to think about the auditorium and the audience experience. So the auditoriums are also quite uh, alike. The fact that it's my first time working at the Abbey is it does it makes it special for me, but it not in any it doesn't affect the design or my process. It is exciting for me to be designing on the Abbey stage, and that's uh, I think Wayne thought it would be good to work together again on this production so I guess Wayne got me in the door which is great and it's no it's very exciting to be working at the Abbey for me obviously in Ireland this is the it's the National Theatre it feels uh, the rehearsal room feels like any other rehearsal room it's it's a it's a, a lab if you like it's an acting lab a directing lab uh, but the machine beyond the rehearsal room it feels like the National Theatre when you see the portraits on the wall, you feel the history in the building and you have the luxury of a wonderful wardrobe department you know, everybody working in there and the art department and the stage management I mean it's really a great setup. It's as a designer it's, I kind of have to get used to, used to the fact that there are teams of people to help and that you don't have to run around doing so much, you can delegate so uh, that's great it's been, a, it's been a pleasure so far and it's all coming together, I hope. Yeah. Uh, just here is perfect. Ah, what's the damage? 1920. Hello, Andy. How are you? How are you? Yeah, hi, how's it going? How are you? All hands on deck. Oh, yeah. Good, well, the final week of set construction really is for the scenic artists to, to, to finish the scenic work on the set. So, generally speaking, most of the set's actually finished being constructed. Um, and they're applying the final coats and techniques to, to bring it up to the, the standard when it'll actually be seen by the audience. Usually there's actually you know a little bit more scenic work on stage in situ once the set's uh, complete on stage. But at this point, this is just for the final, uh, for the final notes, give to the artists to, 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 to finish the set off. So at the moment, um, they're discussing kind of the, the, the rustiness of um, a, a, an upstage kind of exterior-looking wall and uh, just discussing uh, the materials and stuff to kind of finish that to the uh, desired uh, extent. Unusually, sometimes you, if you introduce something actually real, it makes everything else look wrong in some bizarre way um, because everything else is essentially timber or plaster, so there's a um, balance in there to make the whole thing look unified and uh, look like it's from the same world, to create the same world. So I think at the moment it's uh, you know it's to actually take away the the pure realism and true realism of the actual metal being rusted, and also potentially to tie it in from a palette from a color perspective, in with the rest of the set also, um, because the techniques being applied around it are very different and the materials around it are quite different also. I'm Liz Barker and I'm a scenic artist. I'm working here on the set and um, working from a model with two of my painters. 
Jason and Louise. And we take references from the designer who's giving us a 1 to 25 scale down model. So we're interpreting her interpretation of the play. We texture, we batter, we try and make things look as realistically aged as is possible, which isn't easy when you're given something that's brand new. And yeah, we're working in a warehouse with lots of noise and dust and it all sounds very romantic when you tell someone that's what you do, but it actually isn't. It's hard work, but it's very rewarding because every show is different and, and sometimes reality is against you because we have been using real rust colours and it's actually too rusty for stage. So we've had to tone it down and make it look, it's fake rust we're putting on now, which has kind of been incredible, but that's, that's our job. It is the magic of theatre. It's all about interpretation and, uh, what's the word? Perception. Yeah. It's going, it, yeah, it's going well. We were looking at different, uh, the quality of rust and how it all looks too rusty now. So we're going to have to take back the rust, make it look a little less rusty. Liz has done a great job, too good. So we're going to take it down a bit. But it's looking great. Yeah. It's all in the detail. Yeah, the devil's in the detail. You don't want people to be looking too much at the set. So if their eye is drawn too much to the details, then and Liz hopefully will come up to Belfast to do a final paint call before opening night. Bit more to do here, but they know what they're up to now. Uh, for the last leg and it's it's looking good the in terms of the, the the creative process the set is the first thing really that's that's kind of realized in terms of its uh, idea or concept um so the lighting designer will have time when this is in uh, on stage the lighting designer will mix certain lighting states and colors and angles and, and levels to really achieve the sense of drama and, and mood and atmosphere that the play will require pat Burn and the guys here from TPS are engaged to build the set. It's a moon box, so two metre wide moon which flies in during the show. Those guys are just putting the lights into it. It's a metal frame covered in timber so that we can attach a BP cloth on top of it. It's a BP cloth and then a, what's called sheeting to sort of diffuse the light behind it. And it's hung on wires from a bar and on a queue it flies in. The big moment here. Yeah. Well, I'm sure there are other moments in the play, but... <laughs> we'll load it up on Saturday and we'll go to Belfast on Monday and set it up Monday evening and Tuesday. Two of us from here will go up and that's it. We'll, then we'll supervise it going up in the Abbey in June, I think. Yeah. It has to be built to fit the truck or to fit going to a venue. We know, we know what we've done, so we know it should fit together when we get there, yeah. So the type of detail now we'll be talking about in terms of the truck and all this, all these pieces are put in is what goes in first, so then what comes out last. So, so we're just working that sequence because, you know, like anything, you're talking about a lot of small elements that are put together to create one entity, if you like, on stage. So you have to work out the sequence of how everything is transported, unloaded, assembled and finished. So, uh, and also in terms of the sections and how big they are, how many people you need to, to have in Belfast to take them off the truck, they probably they will all, all the pieces will be weighed anyways so all those different questions need to be asked in terms of the logistics of actually moving these pieces to Belfast You're about to do a run How are things at this stage of, of the production? Yeah good actually um, it's been um, 
an exciting and kind of fruitful time uh, in Dublin. We're doing our last run now up in the rehearsal room and actually we've invited quite a few of the Abbey staff. I feel like we're really ready to get into... And you, one doesn't always feel like that um, it, it, during a production, but uh, with this production, I think it's got to do with the calibre of the actors I'm working with and also... I've been making kind of three and a half hour plays for years and this play like all happens like without an interval in about an hour and 40 minutes. So we've done quite a lot of of running of it and I I think we're really certainly ready to get onto a set and a stage and feel that and then and then for an audience to come especially with a play that's as kind of extrovert as this you know it really wants someone else to chat to now. The same as in Act 1, but it is now night. Seamus is in the bed that runs along the wall at back. Davron is seated near the fire, to which he has drawn the table. He has a fountain pen in his hand, and is attracted in thought towards the moon, which is shining in through the windows. An open writing pad is on the table at Davron's elbow. The bag left by Maguire is still in the same place. A week before its Belfast opening, the production moves into the Lyric Theatre and begins its final work of staging a new production of this classic play. So in the Lyric Theatre now, uh, set, everything's in pretty much place, so we're to start our technical rehearsals. And uh, with all the best side plans, there's always something that crops up. And just uh, after our first session there, we had a power cut right through the building, and I believe all through Belfast. So we were all waiting out in the uh, cafe area to see how long that might uh, that might last. But thankfully, it actually just managed to finish just before we're due to, due to begin again. So, so it won't inhibit the tech, so the show does go on after all. Sarah Jane Shields is the production's lighting designer. Um, we are on our first lunch break after our first tech session in the Lyric Theatre and we're sitting at the lighting desk at the moment. I would have had conversations with Sarah and Wayne very early on when they were discussing the set ideas and then once um, Sarah started making model boxes then I'd come in um, and just kind of keep an eye on what was going on if I had any questions or if I saw any problems that might arise then, I, then we can address them then. Um, as soon as the final model box is in and rehearsals start, then I would start drafting up a lighting plan, which is um, like a 2D version of what you would see in the theatre. Yeah, so then, then, then we kind of realise everything. Um, lighting is the last thing, I think, to, to be added in. For this production, we're trying to steer away from sentimentality. I think Wayne's very interested in the story being told and being fresh for the audience. So we're trying to create a look that you haven't seen before. For this story. So even though it is set in the 1920s, it's very much a contemporary setting that the audience can, I suppose, recognise when they come in. It is just after our first tech session, so we're still figuring out exactly what the language of lighting is. Um, I would say at the moment what I'm working on is trying to not be too realistic when it comes to the idea of they're in a tenement room. So actually we made it a lot brighter than initially we, we had thought we would. It's always slow to start a tech. It's 
starting is, is the hardest part um, so it took us a while to, to get past the first page of the script this morning um, but now that we're on page three I think once we go into our session this afternoon we'll be flying The moon is a presence in this production Well the moon uh, does does is quite important in the play because um, Sean O'Casey writes stage directions that as soon as Act 2 comes around it's lit almost entirely by the moon there's quite a, a lot of interesting history um, around that time when the, the lamps weren't being lit um, because of the curfew so it's kind of interesting to learn about as well and as a lighting designer I love hearing things in scripts about moons because that me- means I can have wonderful shafts of moonlight coming in on, onto the stage um, also the shape of the moon I think will feature quite heavily in a couple of um, design elements that we might be looking at uh, for the transition um, so there might be a moon motif going through the play uh, we decided we were trying to make the decision whether to light it from the inside or to leave it as a scenic element and we decided to light it from inside using um, strips of LED so it's still quite thin but it has a bit of an internal glow which, um, which looks really well Katie Davenport, the play's design assistant, shows us around the stage. This is the first day of tech, and this is where all the parts come together for the production. So we're kind of, we're very much there. I mean, we're just putting the last props into position, and we're kind of just checking that the main uh, prop pieces are in their right um, spiked areas. But um, the idea behind the set is that it's sort of a rehearsal space, and it's non-period. So we have parts of the set, like the windows and the door, that are straight out of the tenements in sizing, and the door particularly um, is is exactly like a tenement um, door, but uh, yeah, the rest we were using uh, materials like plasterboard and kind of um, stained plywood and birch that we found in the workshop. So we ordered in an awful lot of um, birch ply, but we actually used some of the wadding that was on top and some of the um, other materials because we thought that that felt a little bit more like the feeling we were going for. So um, there are two beds, one for Seamus Shields, um, and that's just kind of like an iron wrought bed. But uh, Davern's bed is a fold-up bed, so he's, you know, he's kind of a, he's just passing by. So he's just staying a little bit uh, with Mr Shields, and he folds up his bed, kind of a visitor. So we have Seamus Shields' uh, coat, hat, and then Davern's cravat and his blazer. They're just hanging up on the wall there. I mean, originally we didn't um, have curtains, we didn't have that in the model box, uh, but Sarah decided halfway through she'd like to kind of signify morning light. And also, it kind of looks nice with the moon coming in, and you can kind of see it through the windows. Sarah decided um, that she wanted kind of a thicker fabric for one of the windows. That, um, we found this one in Hickey's, and I think it's just perfect. I think it's period, but it's also fresh, sort of the vision we're going for at the moment. And also the royal here, which is perfect for the Davern walks um, through in a transition and the voile kind of just peels over his head and it's kind of it's a really really nice moment in the play so even the colour and we chose this kind of without um, any of the colour swatches of the set that really fits in perfectly with the the colours of the set it's kind of a a dirty cream and that it's uh, quite a thick linen fabric and it's um, got a nice floral pattern on it we're over at the mantelpiece um, on the set and this is the section, the religious section that Seamus Shields keeps 
pointing to and coming over to to get a little bit of relief in the play. Um, and we have a Jesus statue here that is broken every night. So we're making up one for every night. So, yeah, we've got 100 models cast because it has a five-week run here and then a seven-week run up in the Abbey. We got the models cast um, in plaster moulds and I'm just painting them up at the moment. Um, Jesus. <laughs> yeah, they'll be thrown every night across the floor. Um, so, yeah, so we paint them up and then um, I sand them down and break them down so that they're quite aged and look like old statues, old relics. Yeah, that's what I'm doing at the moment. Mel Mercier is the production's composer and sound designer. I'm working with Ben Delaney, who's my assistant, and we're sitting at the sound desk at the moment where we have our computer set up and uh, we're sitting in the middle of the auditorium, the best place to hear the balance of sound. And so at the moment in this part of the process, this is the time when the focus is on the sound and the light and the set. And so we're building really building in the cues now at the moment so from from the very start of the show we'll work through over the next couple of days and plot in all of the different sound cues some of them are music and some of them are more kind of realistic sounds so we have those all ready to go here on the computers it's just a question of taking through it kind of almost like moment by moment it's my first time working with Wayne and it's the first time, therefore, that I've done a tech with Wayne. And every director is different. Um, every director rehearses um, shows differently and every director runs a tech in a different way. So I'm kind of learning that as we go. So far, so good. And we're pretty well prepared in terms of the soundscape anyway. I attended some of the rehearsals and uh, had some conversations with Wayne and we had some time to try out a few things in the in the rehearsal room. So that's really, really useful. It means that when you come into the tech that you're not starting from scratch. You know which things are working and which things you need to further develop. And also if there are parts of the play that you know need some sound but you haven't yet had a chance to to try it in the rehearsal room. So you do that during the tech. When you make sound for a show, um, it can do many different things. It can create a sense of the imaginary. It can also serve to uh, draw out the emotional or the psychological dimensions of the narratives. It can create kind of counter-narratives as well. And it can also be used in more mundane ways uh, or more prosaic ways, where, for example, if there are certain uh, realistic sounds, as there are, for example, in this show, um, then you need to be able to create those. The, towards the, this, the end of the play, there are some gunshots and uh, there's some explosions, or there's a raid, uh, there's an ambush. So it's my job to try and evoke that and what's interesting about that is the play is actually set in one room. The music has the potential to help the audience to leave the room, to, to sort of expand the space. So the music has the potential to really expand the space beyond the room that the play itself is set in. So when we do have explosions and things like that, they, they, we need to create the sense that they are far off. Um, when we were in the rehearsal room, for example, in the Abbey, Wayne said, I'd like those 
bombs that go off to sound as if they're going off on O'Connell Street. So, you know, that kind of uh, suggestion then is one that you bring into the making of the into the making of the sounds. But you can also expand the space by trying to maybe underscore some of the scenes as well and that as might bring out the emotional dimensions of them or the psychological. The play, of course, is, is a historical play, but the production is a very contemporary one. And so the sound then needs to help to, to make it meaningful and uh, to communicate to a contemporary audience as well. There are many ways to do that, um, but it does mean, for example, that uh, in this particular production... I haven't gone down the road of trying to create the sound of 1920s Dublin uh, in terms of either the music that might uh, have been current at the time or indeed the soundscape, which of course is very different. You know, if you were listening out your window in 1920, it's entirely different to listening out your window in Dublin uh, from 2015. So it's a question of striking a balance um, there. So, you know, while it needs to be contemporary, at the same time, you probably don't want to create a, a soundscape that sounds like it's 2015 in terms of, you know, the kinds of sirens and the electricity of the place. So that's the job. That really is the, the job of the music. And all of that then has got to collude with uh, the lights, uh, with the set. And also uh, it's there as well to support the storytelling. And that's already to some degree written into the play itself but then the director brings a whole other layer of that so brings a layer of interpretation so it's a kind of collusion in a way to 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 make something that's that's really hopefully um that is fresh and new and that despite the fact that it's almost 100 years old that still has something meaningful to communicate to a contemporary audience Jimmy Fay is delighted to see the production at this stage of development. So here we are. We're well into tech. Wayne and the cast and the crew and the designers are all in the lyric at the moment. They're assembling the show. I would imagine that it's time when you need 
pure concentration. There's an awful lot that's happening. There's an awful lot of decisions that you have to make. Even though we made all these decisions in rehearsals, you now need to bring the play from the rehearsal room onto the stage. And that's what this whole process is about. The Lyric is a beautiful place to do this. You know, it feels very warm and welcoming. I can just imagine now that they are, you know, getting the right light, you know, moving the right space, finding the right viewpoints, and just discovering the voices within that room. As executive producer in the Lyric, you know, I always like to... My office is right beside the um, sound booth, so I have a door that I can go from the office into there. So I'm able to go in and kind of look at a show at night or whatever, like watch a tech. I don't get too much in the hair. But I like to watch other directors. It's a great privilege to be able to do that. You know, and like, I mean, different directors have different styles and different, you know, energies within a kind of technical rehearsal. Everybody is, like, absolutely concentrated. Everybody is trying to make the whole piece work. It's always a very exciting time because anything can happen. I mean, you've gone from a rehearsal room onto the stage. Everything that's on that stage actually exists. So they may have to find it's not just a stand-in prop, it is the prop. I mean, it's quite a proppy play. There's an awful lot that's used from typewriters to smashing busts of Jesus, you know, all over the place. They need to get this right, you know, and then be replaced by the stage management the next day and go for it again. What I like to do is, like, I mean, watch a little bit of rehearsal. But, you know, all rehearsals are slightly tense. You know, there's always that little element of... You know, you're kind of walking just on your tippy toes just to make sure that nobody causing any, you know, you're not making any noise or anything. So we'll probably just leave them to it. You can hear them, they're at it. It's quite nice. It's great, good working atmosphere. And the next time I'll see the show is actually at the dress rehearsal on Saturday night. You know, it's good. It kicks off in the matinee here. Then there's a day off on Monday. You know, they've worked really hard. And we're straight into kind of previews again Tuesday evening onwards. The Shadow of a Gunman by Sean O'Casey, directed by Wayne Jordan, opens in the Lyric Theatre Belfast on Thursday the 7th of May, followed by the Dublin opening on Tuesday the 16th of June at the Abbey Theatre. Next week on Arts Tonight, Contemporary Dance and Ireland Today with contributions by Julia Carruthers, Liz Roach, Deirdre Mulrooney and other guests. Join us then. Good night. Arts Tonight is presented by Vincent Woods and produced by Cleon and the Onluan.